When it comes to changing the world through technology, you can't find a much better example than the simple and much maligned incandescent light bulb. Since Thomas Edison and Joseph Swan's initial market offerings nearly a century and a half ago, the world has been a place where daytime can happen anytime and where candlelight is a thing of romance rather than a way of working into the nighttime hours. And think about it, when was the last time you saw a gaslight besides those old Coleman camp lanterns that so many of us knew growing up? Indeed, these days you flip a switch on the wall without even thinking about it, but the familiar tungsten bulb did more than change our visual landscape. It also sparked off over a century of invention and exploration, resulting in such goodies as Nixie tubes, fluorescent lights, neons, and even the LED that is so ubiquitous today. So, pull up a chair and listen as we discuss electric lights through the ages. From Montreal, Quebec, I'm Jesse Corbet. And from Cambridge, Mass., I'm Orad Reshef. And this is yet another science show. A show where we discuss science from the points of view of a layman. And a scientist. And this week on episode 5, The Light Show. Yeah, we're talking about lighting. Um, ever wonder how a light works or where it came from or why there are so many different kinds? Like, what's wrong with the bulbs we have now? Yeah, people are putting a lot of research and technology into making better bulbs for some reason. Like, what's wrong with this? My, I can see in the dark. That's enough. Well, what you've got there is probably an incandescent bulb, and it's sort of being considered yesterday's technology. The story of the incandescent light bulb really starts before the bulb itself. It starts in 1802, in fact, when British inventor Sir Humphrey Davy sent current through a small strip of platinum. Platinum? Platinum, yeah. Platinum keeps expensive. showing up in science for some reason. Um, yeah, it, uh, we're going we're gonna to do an episode about platinum and just figure about out why platinum. it's so special. Yeah, it, it does show up a lot in science. It's true. It must be onto something, those science guys. <laughs> um, I mean, the thing is, because it was platinum, we're not talking about something practical here. It was a proof of concept. But it sparked off the experimentation that you know got us where we are today. Like even in 1809, Humphrey strikes again with an arc light based on um, a strip of carbon. Right. Carbon actually melts at a much higher temperature than any other material. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, um, in fact, that comes back again later with, with Thomas Edison. But back in 1835, actually, Scottish inventor James Bowman Lindsay, he showed off a light that worked well enough to read by. Um, oh. But then he just sort of considered it, you know, Job done. And he switched to, like, wireless telegraphy. Yeah. And then we never heard of him again, right? And then we never heard of him again. But, like, five years later, we get to 1840. You've got, like, the vacuum tube. Uh, Warren De La Rue put a coiled platinum filament, platinum again, in a vacuum tube. Right. And now the fact that it's inside of a vacuum means it doesn't have oxygen to eat up like an ordinary fire would. Yeah, yeah. Like, the platinum's high melting point plus the absence of gas makes for a long-lasting filament. Cool, The cool. problem here is that platinum is expensive. So there was no way this was going to work commercially, right? But it didn't stop fellow Englishman Frederick de Molins from patenting the platinum and vacuum bulb the next year. Um, five years later, we get our first American name, John W. Starr. He patented a bulb based on carbon. Then he died. So he's really nothing more than a footnote here. <laughs> oh. No, and I mean, up to this point, most light bulbs were short-lived. Uh, they were expensive to produce, and they took a lot of power to run. So we're talking about nothing viable as a product. Mm. Until I, I see where you're leading up to here. This is exciting. Until who, Jess? Thomas Edison in 1878. Awesome. Yeah, so that's the name everybody's been waiting to hear this whole time, I think. I, I think so. I mean, he's the name that most of us know in North America. I think he was kind of an inventor extraordinaire. He made a lot of patents in his life. And this one here, this one sort of changed the world in a lot of ways. 
His first successful test was in 1879. Uh, he used a carbon filament. He also he settled on a bamboo-based carbon filament after his patent was filed. Apparently, carbonized bamboo lasts 1,200 hours, which eliminates the short life issue, right? Okay. So, so then we have to point out, um, so Thomas Edison did not invent the light bulb. No, he did not. Cool. <laughs> I was going to get to that later, but yeah. Yeah, that's a cool fun fact. Yeah, he was, he was building on a lot of work that went ahead of him. Um, and in fact, one name that's very important here is uh, Joseph Swan, because his patent was filed in the UK a year before Thomas Edison's. Really? But Edison forms the Edison Electric Light Company in New York in, New York in, 19, in uh, 1878. Uh, he said, I got this from Wikipedia. He said, we will make electricity so cheap that only the rich will burn candles. Uh, wow. that That's true. That is yeah. how it is today. It's it is true. because candles are like a almost a novelty gift you give to someone when you don't know what to buy them, right? Yeah. Candles is what fancy people have at fancy dinners. Yeah. Yeah. Man, yeah. Oh, that's so dead on. And here's an interesting thing. Okay. In 1883... The U.S. Patent Office invalidated Edison's patent. It said it was based on earlier work by a man named William Sawyer. No way. Yeah, and there was a court battle that lasted, whatever, half a decade or so, at the end of which Edison won. But he had another problem almost immediately because Joseph Swan had filed his patent a year before in the U.K. And Swan's earlier work is what Edison had based his bulb on. So to get around this, Edison uh, got in contact with him and formed a British company with him called the Edison and Swan United Electric Light Company, which Aww. was also considered Edison. What a tricksy guy that Edison was. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be taken down, would he? Well, no, and you know, it's funny because what, um, what this shows me is like there are inventors who invent brilliant things and disappear, and then there are inventors who also know how to do the hustle. Right. Because Edison was an inventor. You can't take that away from him. But he also knew how to do the business side. You know, he was hustling. He was forming relationships. And let's be honest, of all the names you just mentioned, Edison is the only one any of us have ever heard of, really. Well, Edison's the big one. Yeah. yeah. That's the one we learn about in school. Yeah. yeah. We were told that he invented the light bulb. This is on Schoolhouse Rock as you grew up as a kid, right? Yeah. This is what you learn. Uh, and it's not even true. I mean, he invented no. a lot of stuff, but the... Yeah. Yeah, that's really, I love that. So, yeah, a note to scientists. No one cares that you're a scientist. Be a good businessman. Is that what you're telling me? No, no, I, I'm saying that being a good businessman really, really helps. Because let, let's face it, no one really remembers Swan, but Edison, General Electric, is still here today. That's, oh, it's true. That's his company that he formed. Yeah, you know. Oh, but one interesting thing is that Swan's bulb was based on uh, cellulose, and Edison was still doing the, the, the uh, bamboo-based carbon and the rest of the world gradually moved over to cellulose and um, the american edison company stuck with bamboo for a really long time i mean they're not based on bamboo anymore obviously but they were like the last holdouts and i guess oh tungsten right that was that came from hungary i don't remember the year but so i think we kind of skipped a point here we have to kind of discuss how these bulbs work because the driving force in these bulbs is the filament that you use that lights up right yeah so what we were talking about is how a, a light bulb really is, and most people know this, uh, an evacuated vacuum. And on the inside, you've got a piece of material that emits light when it gets heated up a lot. And what a lot of the history of light bulbs is figuring out what that little piece of material inside should the vacuum be. should be. Yeah. And so you're talking about how bamboo, like carbon, is really good because it has a high melting point, so it can last very long. You also talked about bamboo and you talked about other materials. And I think it would be interesting to talk about 
why is it that things glow when they're heated, right? What is it that makes light bulbs possible? And this is an, a phenomenon known as incandescence. Uh, I think you can guess. That's why it's called an incandescent bulb. Incandescence, yeah. you're probably most familiar with incandescence if you think about uh, how your stovetop at home, you know when right. you heat up your stovetop and then you lift off the pot and then under it it's like this orange red? For land's sakes, don't touch it. Yeah, that's that's your clue yeah. not to touch it. If it's red hot, that's where red hot comes from. It's because of the incandescence of the material. And the way these things work is the hotter it gets, the further down the blue spectrum it goes. So you start off with red, and then slowly it becomes white, which means it's got every color in it, so red and blue, the whole spectrum. And eventually it gets bluer and bluer, right? It becomes ultraviolet right. and you can't see it. And that, that means it's really hot when it's blue. Like, it's really hot, probably 6,000 degrees Celsius. So I got a question for you then. Right. Like, you know, if you, if you look real close at a candle, and it's like there's nothing at the very bottom. I'm thinking about... When I was young, I was in the Air Cadets, so I spent my summers on an airbase. And at night, when the CF-18s were taking off, the engines would rev up, and you'd have this huge pillar of fire coming out the back, but there was nothing right at the back end of the plane. It was invisible. Okay, so uh, I have two guesses, right? The first could be that either it is ultraviolet and you can't see it because it's so hot. That, that would match up with this theory we have here, right? Yeah, And the other could be it's due to some kind of chemistry that we'd have to look into. It could be that uh, the flame only catches afterwards, right? It's, it's, uh, oh, I see. You know, because uh, when you see a flame, it's really um, a whole bunch of electrons dropping down. So we have to talk about what light comes from, but it's electrons dropping down to their ground state, and then they emit off light, and maybe they just don't do it until they've reached a certain distance. I don't, I don't okay. know. But that is a cool observation. If you look at, like, the wick of a candle, it looks orange-red on the outside, and the closer to the inside you look, it's also you know, bluer and, and sometimes clear or no. Yeah. And, and that is also the same thing. I, I'm not sure what it's for. We should look into it. That, that's very interesting yeah. to find out. If we find out, we'll, we'll put it on the, uh, on the website. Uh, so then you might ask, so why is it that the hotter it gets, the further blue it gets? And is it the same for all materials? And the answer is that, yeah, actually everything is incandescent. So everything right. has what's called thermal radiation. Everything, yeah. every Makes object sense. you and i we have thermal radiation this is why you can use an infrared camera to see us in the dark right so the thing is we don't glow hot enough for it to be in the visible spectrum so we're glowing infrared light it's all the way on that side of the spectrum beyond where our vision can see okay. if you could heat us up <laughs> to you know three thousand degrees we would glow so um everything has the spectrum and what causes the spectrum um, we have to talk, go into a little bit more physics. And what we'll get to is basically if you have charges that move around, they create light. This is just a thing. If an electric charge moves around um, as it accelerates or decelerates, really, it's either it's, it's giving off light. And okay, so it's, it's an extreme case of vibrate anything and it creates heat. Anything charged. Vibrate anything yeah. charged and it creates heat in the form of light. And if you have a single atom... Say you have, uh, you know, one atom here and there's one electron on it, then we know that from atomic theory, at least classical atomic theory, the electron orbits around this nucleus of this atom, no problem, but it can only be at certain energy states. Um, certain levels? Certain, they're called energy levels. Think of it as an electron can only move this fast or this fast or this fast. It, it can't go half as fast. There's just, it's, it can't. Physically, it's not allowed. And Quantized. Because it's quantized and it's a right. huge mind blower in the early 1900s. Yeah. You know, it's like, why? But that is what it is. 
And so sometimes it's allowed to go from one to the other. It's just in the middle, there's a forbidden zone. And so when it transitions from one level to another, so when it goes from this speed to that speed, mm -hmm. you know, from this kind of orbit to that kind of orbit, it emits a photon. So if, if typically if it goes from faster to slower or from a higher orbit to a lower orbit, or what we would say from a higher energy state to a lower energy state, it'll emit a photon. That is how it bridges this energy difference. It's got too much energy. It gives off light. And now it's got okay. less energy. And if you have any individual atom, it'll have a spectrum that is only due to these allowed levels. So hydrogen okay. will have only, you know, this photon allowed, this photon allowed, this photon allowed. And it'll be, for example, 300 nanometers, 350 and 355. I'm throwing numbers out. But okay. neon would have 410, 415 and 475. These are just different things because every atom is different. This is one of the Again, things. Again, you're just pulling numbers out of the ether, right? Totally. We yeah. don't have to be checked on this. Okay. No, but it's just the point is that every atom has a different thing. However, yeah. if you take, you know, millions and billions and numbers bigger than this, right? 10 to the 23, 10 to the 25 atoms and put them together to create a body, to create like yeah. me or to create a, a filament or something. All of these levels kind of mix together. There's just so many of them okay. that it creates a broad spectrum. And also, if you heat up the electrons, the more you heat them up, then the more they can move. So there's actually more energy levels available. So the electrons go up to higher and higher ones. And okay. one thing I, I forgot to mention is the levels at the very bottom are spaced really far apart. But as you go up and up in these energy levels, they become really, really close together. So if you heat something a lot, it has access to these very, very, very close levels. So you can get even closer and closer wavelengths. And okay. so you have access to, um, you have a whole spectrum instead of just a few finite levels. And so in an incandescent bulb, I, I've, this is a bit long-winded at this point, but all they do is they put a voltage across this thing which accelerates electrons basically. Right. And as it accelerates them, they get hot. And when they get hot, they give off light as they go up and drop down. And as time goes on, they start to decay so that after, say, for the bamboo carbon, after 1,200 hours, boom, it's done. Yeah, the decaying, uh, I think, is because of evaporation of the material. As you heat okay. something up, it's bound to evaporate, even yeah. though it doesn't melt. Carbon, I looked it up. It's kind of weird, and I don't understand the physics behind it. But for some reason, it can evaporate. It can vaporize without melting. Without melting. Yeah. It, it, Interesting. It, yeah. It, so that is actually why they settled on tungsten, because it's got the second highest melting point but it's much much more stable than carbon and probably more affordable than than the old platinum yeah more for, affordable than platinum yeah Interesting. um so these bulbs these incandescent bulbs that they work by heating and like i said most of the energy is on this side of the spectrum where you can't see it in the infrared unless you heat it really hot yeah. so what ends up happening is that 95 percent of the energy in this bulb is light that you can't even see it, actually it's heat essentially it's heat. It's just heat, yeah. It just heats up your home. And this can actually be very significant. Like, if you live somewhere cold, so there was a study done by the Canadian Centre for Housing Technology in 2009, and what they said is that actually how homes that switch from incandescent bulbs to more energy-efficient bulbs, they find that their heating bills go up. Uh, yeah, because um, apparently um, if you've got a house full of, of uh, incandescent bulbs, you can keep your... Uh, your household heating down by like a, a degree or two all winter. Yeah, um, they they actually say the reduction in lighting energy use, yeah. so the energy used from better lighting, was almost offset by the increase in space heating energy use. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's funny that you bring this up because this is an argument that I keep having because I, I'll, I'll say it publicly, I hate the incandescent bulb. <laughs> Why? Um, I'm all about moving past it. And I've had this exact argument because, you know, winter in Montreal can draw blood, right? Right. Um, and I think, I have nothing to back this up with, but I think that that benefit in winter is 
zeroed out by the fact that if you have a house full of incandescent bulbs in a Montreal summer when it's 36 degrees and humid, then you're still heating your house. So if you have uh, air conditioning, you have to pump up the air conditioning. Yeah, so that's a good argument. And there is there are numbers to back up this argument yeah. uh, you can I, I'll put the article in the show notes the one thing you have to consider are older homes that have um, it depends on the kind of heating you have in your home if you have a clean right. heating in your home then it's a good switch to make if you have dirty heating in your home you might actually prefer heating it up with an incandescent bulb in the winter and that even offsets the summer cost of an air conditioning yeah okay that makes sense and yeah, by the way yeah. uh, the Canadian government had originally planned to phase out bulbs by well by now but the government put it off until January 1st, uh, 2014. Uh, I've actually got this article in Wired that also says they're phasing out um, incandescent bulbs in the U.S. So we have to find some new kind of technology and to move past it. So what are we going to use, Jess? Well, funny you should say that, Orat. Uh, because, uh, for instance, at my house, what I have a lot of is uh, compact fluorescence. Ooh, fluorescent um, bulbs. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sold on the fluorescent, but I think it's a really good step up from from incandescent um it's also a pretty old technology though is it really yeah well it, essentially it's another 19th century invention it's based on like a weird glow that had been observed in glass vacuums that had a, electricity going through them mm-hmm. um the first big name on this is sir george stokes who was at cambridge stokes is a very big name yeah, in physics. Uh, he was an Irishman working at Cambridge, and he called it fluorescence because many forms of fluorite uh, glow, I guess, when zapped due to impurities. Or Right. So if, if I remember correctly. What fluorescence is, is, as we said, if you have an atom or material and you excite an electron, so it'll absorb light, for example, right. yeah. and the electron will go up to a very high state all the way over here, right? Yeah, all and the way then, at the top. Eventually, this electron will drop back down, but it doesn't drop down to the ground state where it came from. It drops down to another state that's a little higher than that for some reason. Okay. And so that photon that it releases, so if it absorbs an ultraviolet photon, it might release a a visible photon. So this is exactly how black lights work, for example. Your t-shirt absorbs light that you can't really see because it's ultraviolet and it gives off white light. That is an example of fluorescence. Interesting. I didn't know that about black lights. And that's also why you can't have it go the other way, right? You couldn't, for example, have an infrared photon be absorbed to give you visible or, for example, a red light and then it gives you blue, right? It can only go this way because you need to give up some of the energy, right? You can't create more energy. Right, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's one way to remember how it works. Huh, interesting. Yeah, you could have you could have fluorescence where you absorb red light and it gives you infrared, sure. Um, but you wouldn't be able to see that with the eye. It probably happens, but we don't get to see it with the eye. Right. So, so that's oh. fluorescence, yeah. Yeah, and this is also, by the way, the difference between like a scientist and an inventor, right? Because Sir George Stokes calls this fluorescence, and then nothing happens. <laughs> Until like a German glass blower, uh, he improved the vacuum quality in glass tubes thanks to something called a, ver- a mercury vacuum pump. And these tubes set the stage for later tubes, like the Crookes tube, right? Um, you remember the Crookes tube, right? Uh, no, unlike me. Well, the, the, Crooks, the Crooks tube was pretty crappy for lighting because the vacuum inside was so perfect. But that's the one that was involved in discoveries of the electron and the x-ray. Oh, is that the same thing as the cathode ray tube? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. I didn't take note on that, but uh, I remember the cathode ray being in the same paragraph 
Okay. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Okay. Well, uh -huh. we're going to get angry emails if it isn't the same. Yeah. Um, the way these fluorescent bulbs work, so that's the, the effect of fluorescence. The actual bulb, you were talking about how he left on some charge and then it went into a vacuum and made this glow, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what it is is the uh, tungsten you have, sorry, in an incandescent bulb you have tungsten and the tungsten electrons get accelerated in there and they heat up and glow, right? Yes. In a fluorescent bulb, you have on the inside, you have a gas. Just a gas, um, yeah. Could be neon, uh, is a, you know, neon lights are an example of fluorescent bulbs. Yeah. Um, uh, argon is uh, used sometimes. Mercury is the most common, I'd say. And what you do is you, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that some good things are poisonous, right? It's unfortunate. But so what they do with mercury is they um, have on either side, they have a pair of electrodes and they accelerate a voltage between them. And then electrons are shot out of one side of the electron and then they get caught on the other side. And as these electrons fly through, they bump into the electrons inside the mercury atom. And then those electrons get excited and then they drop again right. and they give you light. And the thing is, since mercury is blue, you kind of want white lighting. And yeah. so all of these things are coated with a fluorescent phosphor that'll take blue and give you white light. Oh, okay, interesting. So Very the fluorescence isn't due to the gas discharge on the inside. The fluorescence is the name of the coating that gives you white light from the light, um, okay. light okay. bluish mercury light. And do you know why um, they settled on mercury? Is it just like uh, affordable at that kind of scale or what? That's a good question. Maybe it's because if you look at the alternatives, um, suppose you chose neon. Yeah. So remember I said if you have fluorescence, you have to start with something bluer in order to get something white. that covers yeah. Yeah, white or, or red. If you start with neon, you already start with red. So physically, you just could not turn can't do it. red light into white. Okay. So I'm willing to bet that limits the possibilities. Argon is purple, so argon is kind of blue. You could use it, I guess, but maybe mercury is cheaper than argon. Well, interesting because... After that initial, the, the German glassblower I was telling you about, Geisler, um, over the next several decades, like that sort of kicked everything into high gear, right? Um, and some of the stuff that they used in experimenting was like carbon dioxide, nitrogen. But I mean, by the time you get all the components together in around, what is it, 1934, I think, we had sort of ended up with pretty much what we have now, you know? So I'm just, I, I wonder, like, of all the things that were possible... I guess, what, in, in 1934, give or take, did we know that mercury was as bad for us as, as it is? I don't think so. All thermometers up until recently were filled with mercury. Yeah. And it's only recently that people said, okay, we can't have that anymore. We've got to replace it with something more modern. Um, you actually hit on a really interesting point because you could take any gas and put it in a gas discharge tube and look at its spectrum. Yeah. And every single element, as I said earlier, has its own spectrum because it has its own energy levels in different places. Yeah. So these, this spectroscopy, it's a whole field. And this was the first, one of really the first eyes into the quantized nature of physics, of the world. This was really, people saw these like very discrete lines of wavelengths. Oh, it's only right. this one, but it's not the one right beside it. Why is that? And this was the first clue that the world was quantized and right. really this helped... Uh, quantum theory go a long ways. Uh, interesting. Yeah, you you take it for granted. Yeah, it's very important uh, for the progress of science that we had these tubes. Very interesting. And speaking of things that are important for the progress of science, um, I know this isn't really lighting, but we should talk about lasers. Yeah, uh, actually, you know what? It is related to lighting because lasers are good at a lot of the lighting things that 
you don't tend to like you're not gonna see an incandescent bulb pointer do you know what i'm saying oh right yeah um and and incandescent bulbs aren't as cool in rock concerts um (laughs) (laughs) actually lasers are definitely uh i have it in my notes that they are quote unquote the coolest kind of light um also i work full-time as regular listeners to the show know by now i'm a graduate student and i work full-time in a laser lab and i will get hanged if i get anything wrong in this section one thing is that lasers um charles h towns and basov and prokhorov won the nobel prize in physics in 1964 for their development of the laser that's how important it was and that was based on the earlier maser right laser is an acronym for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation so if instead of the l instead of light you could say microwaves amplified right um, they also had ultraviolet, yeah. so they were going to call it a UVaser. <laughs> they had X-rays; they're going to call it a Xaser. Um, but yeah. all of those terms dropped, and we just call them all unanimously a laser now. So, maser is really a subset of laser. Okay. It's just when we think of laser, we think like red. Right. Okay. Laser really means laser really means a lot of different things. And and a laser, by the way, is really scalable, right? I mean, if you look at what it's used for, I mean, you got big lasers like in labs and stuff, but look at the size of the laser in your Blu-ray player. Yeah, so you got lasers that are handheld. You yeah. have lasers like the for CD-ROMs for Blu-rays. You have lasers for laser eye surgery. Barcodes um, at the supermarket. You have lasers for um, cutting, laser writing, laser cutting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in my lab, um, we have these lasers that span entire rooms. Like oh, literally, yeah. it's a room. Wow. And what they do is they use them to blast silicon and to hyper-dope silicon. So you can dope a material. And what that means is, say I take a, a perfect silicon lattice so there's like you know silicon's in a grid silicon atoms in a grid and you can take out some of the structure without changing you know it'll change how the silicon behaves without changing the shape of the grid interesting okay and so this is called doping a material it's very important in the semiconductor industry and in all of electronics you can use lasers to do this and it hyper dopes them it actually replaces a way way orders of magnitude more than you could ordinarily and so we do that in my lab they create what's called black silicon and you guys should google that if you're interested in that but you're not going to light your house using lasers that's for sure yeah, uh, right. What, well, what you, you might, yeah, what you might light your house with, and this is where it gets cool, is light-emitting diodes. LEDs. Oh, man. I stayed up really late trying to figure out how these work. I am sold on them. Yeah? Why do you like them? Uh, because they last forever. Unlike the CFLs in my house, if you drop one and break it, you don't have to get the kids out immediately. You know? That's true. They're actually very robust. <laughs> they last forever, Yeah, man. they're... So LEDs are made of solid state materials. So it's like a semiconductor, you know, you could make it silicon, whatever. Actually, you can't make it out of silicon, but that's very subtle, but silicon-like materials. Um, And it's really, it's robust. There's no filaments. It's really compact. You can make them like the size of a millimeter by millimeter squared. Um, And in theory, they should last really, really long. Um, And it's basically all around better in every respect (laughs) in terms of efficiency and robustness. Except for it's really not it's not easy to make a warm white light, right? And also it's more expensive. But that's just for now. I feel like it's kind of like computer chips in that it's getting cheaper. Yeah, economies of scale. Exactly, yeah. it's getting cheaper in a very like controlled way, just like other computer semiconductors. The stuff. Um, the context that I think LEDs are good at are in a Montreal winter, you can't really put a CFL outside because of very low temperatures, unless you have a very special CFL. Uh, CFLs also, if you're turning the light on and off all the time, you're really reducing the lifespan. You know, LEDs have like none of these problems. 
Right. LEDs are so perfect for things like street lighting or traffic lights. Cars. You don't replace them often. You put one in once, and then it's yeah. good for a really long time. And they run on very little power. Yeah. You know? You want to know how they work? Yep. Sure. What you have um, in an LED is what's called a junction. So remember earlier I talked about doping a material. Yes. So what they do is on one side they dope it to have extra positive charges, and then the other side they dope it to have extra negative charges. And at the boundary between these two things, you have what's called like an evac- a depletion zone. Okay. And in the depletion zone, like no charges are allowed there at all. So it's perfectly neutral, and it's just due to the fact that you have extra positives on one side, negatives on one side that kind of shimmy together in the middle. Okay. And so if you're an electron on one side of this junction, you want to go to the other side. You're not allowed. You're forbidden. Okay. And and what you can do is you can apply a voltage, and the voltage will make the depletion zone go away, and then the electron will be allowed to go to the other side. And if you apply the voltage the other way, nothing will happen. So it's also a diode, which means, you know, a current can only go one direction, not the other. Yeah. Now, what if you have an electron that's in an excited state? So this is a theme we keep coming back to. You have an electron that's in an excited state on one side of the junction, right? Yeah. It is dying to go to the other side. That's its home, but yeah. it can't because of the depletion zone. So you apply a voltage. This makes the depletion zone go away. And suddenly the electron can go join, you know, its other side and go to its home and then it goes to the ground state and poof, gives off a photon. It's really, instead of having an atom, you have like a physical location. Yeah. And um, and it's very controlled. You can build these things. You know, it's, you're not, the levels aren't due to just the material, right? Yeah. It's, you create these levels. It's interesting because there's a real unifying theme in all lighting from... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there aren't, this is kind of how light is made, I guess. Interesting. And LEDs, because they're so small and compact, people use them in things that aren't lighting. For example, um, computer screens. So I should say TV screens. They have LEDs. Um, cell phone screens, obviously. Um, there are things called OLEDs, so organic LEDs. Yeah. So instead of using, I guess, semiconductor materials, they use some kind of organic. And um, and OLEDs are flexible, too, I think. Yeah. 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 Isn't that weird? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's so cool. weird. Like you can bend the screen and have <laughs> That's going to open up a lot of stuff over the next few years, I think. But how many LEDs do you have at home, you know, lighting your house? Well, a lot. There's one on the top bezel of my computer to tell me that I'm being videoed. There's one on this hard drive next to me. All my bass pedals. But I meant, like, lighting, like, the white light in your kitchen or your living room. Like, there's no you LED know, bulb, right? I, I don't have an LED bulb, but I backed a... Um, a Kickstarter. A Kickstarter, and oh I have God, one coming. The, the, really? The Nano Light, yeah, which is now called the Nano Leaf, I think. But yeah, I'm just waiting for it to arrive. <laughs> you know, you're taking for granted that you can buy this thing because very not too long ago you weren't able to, and we have the Lighting X Prize or the L Prize to thank for commercializing this kind of thing. That's so true. In 2008, um, the U.S. Department of Energy put up a $10 million prize for the first company that can, quote, replace the 60-watt incandescent bulb. So they wanted to retire that bulb. And so what they wanted was something that was bright like 60-watt bulb, but wasted less than 10 watts and could last over 25,000 hours. And there are a whole bunch of other specifications about, like, the color and, you know, the brightness, and there's, like, measurements you have to do to see if you'd win. But this was five years ago. So you can imagine, before five years ago, Jess, you could not have ordered a bulb like that. Yeah, and you know what? They're still really expensive, man. I mean, we're still not... Yeah, but it'll pay for itself. Yeah, because CFLs, when they came out, were, like, 60 bucks a bulb, and now you can pick them up at, you know... Home Depot for like a very affordable price comparatively. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm pretty I'm pretty optimistic about LEDs as well. And by the way, the the company that won 
the uh, the L Prize, Phillips. Right. The bulb is really, really cool looking. Like you guys it's should cool Google looking. it. It definitely looks like from the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it looks awesome. And I think that uh, it just even just in terms of marketing, that's just, that's a good step for them. You know. Yeah. Apparently, they were selling that bulb for fifty to sixty dollars, yeah. and now it's um, lately it went down to fifteen dollars per bulb. Okay. And apparently, according to the customer service site, the bulb has been discontinued. But that's okay because there's these other people. You know now. Somebody's planted a flag, and other people are running yeah. this technology. Yeah, you can you can buy them now. It's uh, it's just they're they're still really expensive. Yeah, um, I have here. If every sixty watt incandescent bulb in the U.S. was replaced with a ten watt L prize bulb, the nation, so the U.S., would save about thirty five terawatt hours of energy, or three point nine billion dollars in a year, and they would avoid twenty million metric tons of carbon emissions. That's amazing. Which is enough electricity to power the lights of nearly eighteen million homes. But the thing with numbers like that, though, is, you know, they're almost unreal to people. So what they have to do is find a way of saying your household will save this and then people will go out and buy these bulbs, you know? Yeah, I found a stat that said if you replaced your light bulb with a fluorescent yeah. lighting, yeah. it's it'll save you six dollars per bulb. Yeah, I've seen that one as well. I haven't found one for LEDs yet, though, because I think LEDs, it's too um, new fluctuates too much. Yeah, it's too new. There's too many different kinds of things. Well, and also when your bulb is like sixty bucks, you're waiting a long time to for it to pay itself off. You know? Yeah. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. Um, in, yeah, in time. So, what do you think, mailbag? Yeah, let's uh, move on to the mailbag section of the show. Is there any letters this week? Yeah, we have one note here. From Phil in Cambridge. And he writes in to talk about the maximum possible size for an animal. Because remember, we were wondering about it on, on the air last time. And what he says in part is, this one has to do with scaling. Basically, a skeleton gets heavy faster than it gets sturdy. Big bones mean heavy bones. As bones get bigger, the weight they support goes up like the square of the length. But the weight they, gr- they add grows even faster, like the cube. This means that if you scaled up any animal, you'd eventually reach a point where its bones weigh more than they can support, and its skeleton would collapse. That's the upper limit. That also explains why sea animals can be larger than land mammals. Things weigh less in water. The whole thing works in reverse when you talk about very tiny animals. That's why ants can carry so much weight without collapsing. And then he says that engineers have to take this into account when designing bridges. Just because a scale model is sturdy doesn't mean that the real thing will be. Wow, yeah, I like what's cool about this is he explains it to you, and then he says, here's one example on one extreme, whales. And you're like, yeah. And he goes, and here's another example on the other extreme, ants. And you go, yeah. (laughs) And once you see, like, the two extreme cases in light, you're like, yeah, I mean, that makes total (laughs) sense to me, actually. (laughs) And then, oh, and by the way... Bridges. (laughs) Bridges. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a, thanks for that email, Phil. That's a yeah. really good letter. We really appreciate it. And um, if you guys want to write into the show with any suggestions, questions, or corrections, you can always email us at emails at yetanotherscienceshow.com. And if you're in the U.S., you should call us and leave a voicemail at 774-300-YASS. That's 774-300-9277. You know, we're still waiting on our first voicemail, and maybe next episode, episode 6, will be the one where we get it. Here's the hope. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at YASS Podcast, and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash yet another science show. All of this information and more can be found at yet another science show.com. So thanks for listening. In Montreal, I'm Jess Corbet. And in Cambridge, I'm Orad Reshef. Tune in next time. 